Welcome to the Born and Raised Audio Experience. Presented by Onyx. the guy that I've been actually looking forward to meet for a long time and finally had the chance to and he's actually got his whole company in our booth Josh from Montana Knife Company is here with us today and uh, I just wanted to kind of get down Josh and talk about just the the whole journey that you've went through to get where you are now big huge name you guys came out swinging I <laughs> just like yeah it, it was you guys I bet it's been kind of a whirlwind for you for the last what three years yeah yeah we're just starting into our third year now and it's uh it's been surreal it's been amazing um kind of feels like we're running from a forest fire all the time slightly <laughs> being burned all the time but uh no it's been absolutely incredible it, it it's interesting because I think people think that we're like we just like appeared out of nowhere which we kind of have but it's also a 30-year overnight success story, you know? I've done, um, I, I, you started when you were 11, didn't you? Yeah. And so it's, uh, it's yeah. been a long journey. Yeah, so I, yeah, I started making custom knives when I was just a kid. My Little League baseball coach started teaching me, and um, he'd bring knives to practice. And he was an outfitter and a hunter and would show his hunting knives to the dads at practice. And, um, of course, being an 11-year-old, growing up loving hunting and fishing, you know, and he was bringing knives. Of course, I knives thought cool. that was super cool. And uh, so, yeah, he invited me up to his shop and started teaching me. So, and th- from there, I just, I just kind of want to touch on all aspects of this and how it has become what it is. It's uh, pretty amazing, honestly, what you guys have done. You started uh, going to blade shows and stuff, and we'll get to, I don't know, anybody listen to this, but if you went down the forge and fire rabbit hole like I did, yeah, it's pretty crazy. But so at like 15, you were growing up, and you were just, you started, you were the youngest blade master bladesmith ever, correct? That's right. Yeah. yeah. So walk yeah. me through what that looks like from, 15 years old going and 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 becoming that yeah you know like i say i got going early and then uh you know rick dunkerley that started teaching me kind of had the foresight to say you should join the american bladesmith society and if you if you get serious at this like you could be one of the youngest people to ever get through this testing process so i did that i joined when i was 12 um, at 15 years old i tested for uh, the journeyman smith rating okay and i passed that uh, and then you have to be a journeyman for at least two years before you're allowed to test for master. Uh, so four years later, you know, I was in high school and doing all that and sports and hunting and whatnot. So when I was 19, I tested for and became the youngest master bladesmith in the world. Um, that process is cool. It's kind of a two-part process for the journeyman and for the master smith. You know, you know, and really this is where it relates a lot to what we're doing today with the performance side of the blade. Yeah. It's cool if a knife is pretty. It's cool if it looks nice. But ultimately what's most important is if it functions well. And has hunting, has been in, uh, hunting obviously in your background, growing up doing it and everything, has that changed the way, like formed the way that you make the knives now as far as, uh, um, as far as, not performance as far as, because you guys have fillet knives now. Right. Like, and I've been told by a lot of companies, fillet knives is a very iffy zone 
because of just the, t the tension of the knife. And I know we've been with, we've worked um, around Benchmade before. And right. they're like, we'll never make a flay knife because right. they couldn't make one that didn't break. Right. So I, anyway, but like as being an outdoorsman, like do you just make knives for outdoorsmen specifically or do you? We do right now. And that's, and that's really, you know, my, my path has been interesting because like with that, with that testing process on the performance side, you know, you, you have to make a blade that'll, that'll chop a one inch rope in, in one, one chop, which that's just kind of a sharpness test. Okay. But then you got to make that blade chop two, two by fours in half as many chops as you want. But then at the end, it sells to shave. Is that a time deal or nope. just as you long can, as it takes can, them to get you through? You can whittle that thing if you want. Um, but lots of chops, you know, and you get through the two by fours, and then you have to blade, bend that blade 90 degrees in a vise without breaking it. That's impressive. And so that really shows the control over the heat treat of the steel itself, the metallurgy that's involved, you gotcha. know. And so, you know, in relating that to what we're doing today, you know, and, and it's weird because between that point back when I was a kid um, to today, you know, I became one of the more well-known custom makers, which all those knives were based kind of around artwork and beauty and, and how fancy they were and whatnot. Yeah. And some of them would get used, but very little. But all the while I was making those, I'd have guys that would want a hunting knife. And it was hard to make an affordable hunting knife in a custom way. You know, you, you, you need $800, $900 for a, a hunting knife. It's hard to buy that for your kid for his 13th birthday. <laughs> you know, so with what yeah. we're making today, uh, that it bothered me when I would go in the store and I'd see their you know, what was available for hunters. It just, you could tell that the, the people that were designing those knives and making those were not actually hunters. Right. And so that, that learning that metallurgy and that performance side goes into like making a fillet knife today where it can be flexible, but not bend, but also not break. Right. Um, you have to find that sweet spot. Um, and then like with our hunting knives, being able to, we, we like to make our knives as thin as possible. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to carry any more weight when I'm out in the field. I'm already fat enough. I don't need more weight <laughs> on me. I don't and, know about uh, that. But. So making a knife that's thin, that can still, that's also easy to resharpen. Yes. That's so many thing. people can't sharpen a knife, you know, workshops here, um, you know, they have all their different stones and different grinders and stuff for resharpening. And that's the biggest thing that we hear people say is like, well, I can't resharpen a knife. And the thing is, is when you look at that knife and you see how it was originally made, mm -hmm. the customer was set up for failure from the beginning. You know, that blade's too thick, it's too fat, it's too hard, whatever it is. And they think it's their own fault that they can't resharpen a knife. And gotcha. it's like, dude, you never had a shot. Never even, couldn't, couldn't even get there if you wanted. Yeah, and that's why, like, with the WorkSharp, why their, their belt grinder type sharpening systems have become so popular because frankly with a lot of these factory made knives you see they're so thick and heavy that you need a damn grinder just to get them down. to get the thing down yeah material so as you're as you're going through it did you have your own shop all the way through like did you start selling knives just out of when you became a master bladesmith now, i started selling them when i was 12 so my my but like at a shot, like, did you have your own business or were you working another side business? No, I, I mean, back when I was a kid, I had a lawn mowing business to raise money to, <laughs> to buy grinders. I worked in my parents' excavation business, grew up doing dirt work with my dad all the way through high school. And then as soon as I closed on my first home when I was like 21, uh, the day after I closed on our home, I quit my job and went to work full-time making knives. And I did that for about 10 years on the custom side. Okay. Um, and that was that's a tough way to go. It's kind of a starving artist, uh, starving artist situation where 
you're, you're making these high-end knives, and, and it's just tough. You can't do production. You can't hire people. They want they wanted me to build the they knife. They want a thing from Josh. Yeah. They want his blade. And these are four, I can see that. three and four and $5,000 knives. So, oh, my goodness. You know, they're high-end customs. Um, what are they using something that for? Is it display stuff? Is it for a certain... Mostly display. I mean, okay. people are displaying okay. them. Okay. I mean, there were office guys that would carry in a you know a little $2,000 pocket knife. $2,000. And, um, but people collect it just like they do art. And I think especially when the collector started seeing what went into the forging, the carving, all the all the you know the years of skill it takes to get to that, people gain an appreciation for the craftsmanship behind it. Yeah. Um, and honestly, it's one of those things you can pass down for generations. You know. That's what's so cool about just knives in general, right? I mean, you talk to you see people with yeah, this is my grandfather's. You know, it's it's something that I notice that when I give people something, when it's a knife. It's something that they're going to not only use, but it's something that they kind of cherish, right? Yeah. It's not like, you know, I, I can't really, nothing comes to mind, but it's just not a, it's not a real trinket or something. It's something viable. It's something cool. Yeah. And, you know, that that's one of the things that was bothering me is I was making my high-end customs. I was seeing what was happening in the hunting world with the knives, and they were starting to go to more of the replaceable blade, throwaway blade type thing. And it really bothered me because for decades here, I've, uh, you know, the last 30 years, I've had guys come in my shop and they're saying, hey, can you resharpen this old timer? Can you resharpen this buck or this benchmate or whatever? It didn't matter what the knife was. And it didn't matter if that knife was high end or custom when it was made. Yeah. It mattered who carried it. And all of a sudden, hmm. we're starting to throw those knives away. And, you know, when you're 35 years old and you're hunting and you're doing your thing, you're not thinking about 50 years from now and who's going to have that knife. Right. right? But right. As, 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 as people and especially as men... We only pass down a few things. We yeah. pass down knives, guns, artwork, and like, and you know, women like with jewelry. Yeah, yeah but that's be, true. Besides that, like, you can't name much more that we pass down. Maybe an old custom or an old car or something like that. But yeah, a hutch or something or whatever. But people would always walk into my shop and they'd be like, "Can you get a tip back on this? Can you sharpen this? This was my grandpa's. He was in Vietnam, or you know, he went on this cool hunting trip in Alaska, you know." And so. You know, you spin this out 50 years from now, yeah. you know, they're going to be like, oh, my grandpa, he had this YouTube channel and he was making these videos and going to these cool places and, and you know, might be the only thing left from, you know, like you or I yeah. that, that they can have. And they're like, he, he used this on this video and this hunting, you know, the Yukon. Yeah. You know, so yeah. we don't think of that today. No. But trust me, it's real. I've, I've seen it a thousand times in my shop. That's one of the things like YouTube for us. It's like... My great great grand after I'm gone, they're gonna be able to watch and see. Can you imagine being able to see your grandpa right now? All the stuff that he went through, it'd be pretty awesome. That's what I say about even like with the podcast like this. Um, you know, I can't my, my great great grandfather was a, a butcher settled in Montana, uh, had a butcher shop. They they homesteaded in two dot Montana, which is just a bump in the road, two dots on the map. <laughs> and you know, I have a picture of him with my grandfather standing next to him. He was probably six years old, and he had a butcher shop, and his knife is laying on the on the butcher block. Yeah. And I have that knife. That's um, awesome. But to be able to go back and listen to a podcast of, of him and hear his voice, Hearing it, what he hear stories, like. you know, we just think of today as today. But a yeah. hundred years from now, it's going to be like, man, back in the early 2000s, this is what was happening, you know. Tell me as far as like the whole, when you did the Forged and Fire little journey that you had there, tell me how that started out. I've, I've heard rumors and I've, I, I haven't actually talked to you directly about it, but anyway, you were, I, I'm a, I 
thought you were asked to judge the whole thing and stuff like that. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, they originally reached out uh, to several of us bladesmiths about being a judge on it. Yeah. Um, it was something I, I looked into a bit, but I had young kids. You had to spend a ton of time in New York City. Um, and honestly, with the whole reality TV stuff, I was just really nervous. I, I'm very proud of our profession as a bladesmith. I, mm -hmm. I view myself as a professional bladesmith. And you worry when you see these TV shows popping up, like, are they going to make this look like a clown show? I could see that. And so, you know, I passed on all that, uh, passed on the first season. And then after I saw the first season, I was like, all right, well, this, you know, they're, they're representing people pretty well on that. It's not, it's not a big joke. And so I did it the second season. Um, and then they brought me back on the third season as well to do an episode. It was a cool experience. It was one of those, I had quit making knives full time, uh, just through a bunch of personal stuff and trying to kind of reset and, and go at the knife making a different way. I had this idea of this Montana Knife Company for 20 years. I registered the name when I was 19 okay. with the state of Montana. And I talked. That's pretty cool. Like the guy in our booth, Dave, that's with me, he, you know, him and I were linemen together. Um, after I quit making knives full time, I started doing it part time and I got a, a, an apprenticeship and become a journeyman lineman. Gotcha. But we would sit in the bucket truck for hours and talk about this idea I had, Montana Knife Company. Really? And, you know, it's weird today. You know, he, he was the guy that taught my apprentice classes as a journeyman lineman. And now today he's working in my booth. Now and he works in And MKC's a reality. So it's pretty cool. Um, really cool. But, you know, when, when I was doing that, um, it, it, I just had this feeling that, like, I wanted to bring back kind of the respect of the knife as an essential part of your gear. Yeah. You know, we spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars on, you know, base layers and mid layers and outer layers and long range rifles and high end optics. And we'll buy a high end spotting scope, even though we hunt in the dark timber and like <laughs> all this stuff. And then guys will buy a $20 knife. Yeah. And it's like the one thing that you definitely need to have on you when you kill something is a good knife, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and there again, it's one of the few things we're going to actually pass down. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, so MKC kind of was born out of that. I, you know, the whole time I was a journeyman lineman, uh, you know, I, I was planning this and starting to really think about it. And when I got remarried, that's really when it became a reality. I told my, my new wife about my idea and she was like, she said, I've got the house and the kids. You get to your shop every night and, like, build this. And so that's what we did. I can't imagine the, the work at first as far as you had the dream to do it. What, what was it like as far as just going to taking that to a reality? Was it what you thought it would be or was it way, way harder? It's definitely way harder. It's di definitely different. You know, I'm, I've never run a big company. I'm a yeah. blue-collar guy. Grew up in excavation. Right. Knife maker. Um, lineman, lineman. And then all of a sudden trying to grow a production, you know, business. So like when I was a new knife maker, you could just go ask any custom maker, like, how did you do that? And they would teach you or go take a class in your shop. Gotcha. Like you're not going to fly into Benchmade and go ask them if you can like copy their process, No. you know, or, no. or Gerber or whoever. So there was a lot of figuring this stuff out, a lot of asking of questions, a lot of mistakes made in the beginning. You know, I was hand grinding every single knife of our prototype, but then every sheath fits different. Right. And I didn't have a CNC mill. So I was like, wow, this is not scalable. And so, you know, in the beginning, I started finding uh, guys around the U.S. that had the ability to make some parts for me and then bring gotcha. them in, assemble, do the finishing stuff. And, and then as we grew now, we're starting to bring that stuff in-house where we're able to make parts in-house. We have CNC mills on the floor. And so that was my next question as far as so Master Bladesmith, 
built the knife, right? So right. I want a speed goat. Let's just say that's one of that's one of the knives in your line. So you were wanted to build one, right? So you forge it, right? Yourself. Yep. You work your butt off. You have the design that you want. You do all that and everything. How do you get it from your knife that you just did with your two hands to hundreds and hundreds of knives in the line? Right. So, you know, on the custom side, I'm forging something, hand grinding stuff. And, and that's how we do all of our product, prototypes even today. Okay. Um, when I do a prototype for a knife, you know, if we do a born and raised knife, for example, we're going to make prototypes by hand and get those to where they feel good in the hand, they feel custom. And that was the goal all along, is how do I make a production knife feel custom? Yes. And so once I get that process nailed, uh, then, we, you know, then we build CNC programs around that particular knife. We even CMM map that handle that I hand ground and try to gotcha. mill it to feel like it does when I hand grind it. Gotcha. Um, now, you know, we're laser cutting blades out, you know, CNC milling. We're, you know, there's just no way to hand forge you know, 2,000 no. knives no. at a time. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because a lot of people think maybe, you know, the forging was makes, makes a better knife. Forging is a way that back in the old days they could utilize material really efficiently, right? Okay. You didn't just bandsaw out a piece of steel in the 1800s and throw it away, the scraps, right? If you needed to make a wagon wheel or f do some blacksmithing of some kind, they would heat that steel up stretch it, shrink it, do whatever they need to do to make it fit what they, they needed. Okay. Um, you know, with forging, you can make a great knife, but you can also, if you don't do your heat treating right, you can make it worse, um, you know, if you don't know what you're doing. So yeah. we're taking raw steel right from the mill, laser cutting those blades out, and then it's really that heat treating process that's critical. Gotcha. Um, you know, it's, it's all metallurgy and, and making sure that you're doing that stuff right. And that's where that master smith and that blade testing process that we went through you see so many knife makers out there they don't actually test their knives to destruction interesting you know? and uh you test them to failure we test them all the way to failure for gotcha. sure and there's videos on our on our page of me breaking knives uh our bare tooth knife like showing that we our bare tooth blade will bend 90 degrees without breaking it crazy um and it comes back to about 15 degrees bent so i mean it's pretty impressive but you know, even like chopping boards, you start to realize like, oh, this thing gives me blisters, right? Or doing a lot of whittling on something, a lot of work on something. So where if they're using a knife in a field, depending on, its, on what it's intended for, you know that that's comfortable in the hand. It's not digging in somewhere. Yeah. I see all these sharp points on, on handles of, of, of knives in a, in a factory, in a factory knife. And you're like, well, that's going to be a wear point. It's going to be a hot spot in your hand when you're halfway through a moose, you know? So then you kind of learn from that. Yep. Make it different. I got yep. you. I That's got why, you. like, testing, uh, just cutting rope, just endless cuts on, like, half-inch rope. And you cut on rope for 30 minutes straight, you're going to realize where the fatigue in your hand is, where the hot points are, the blisters. Interesting. Um, can you hang on to it? Can you apply a lot of pressure over an hour straight of yeah. cutting? That stuff really is things that matter, you know. So when you do, do a, when you do a knife, you make it up, and then you make the handle and everything about it and then test it before you actually say this is a knife I want in my line? Yeah, absolutely. For yeah. long periods of time? For sure. Okay. Yep. And how many knives we have? It's very not a ton of knives in the hunting line, right? Not, re not yet. I mean, we launched in 2020, which we, we were diving right into COVID when I came out with the uh, prototypes Yeah. Um, in February. Yeah. Uh, COVID was just a whisper and a month later it was like <laughs> everywhere. Full on. You know, and I just made kind of the decision I was going to just ignore the news and just go at this as if 
COVID wasn't even a thing. It was, wasn't something I could control. No. And so we powered through it in 2020, launched our website in uh, July of 2020. Okay. And then I quit my full-time job January 1st of 21. And so, you know, two full years now. So we've been adding knives to our line. And that's the thing, too, people don't realize is if, if today I, I get a design done, I really like it. It's going to take, you know, four to six months to have that knife actually come out and be ready for sale. Production. Yeah, production-wise. It takes time. Gotcha. Because we're launching, you know, we're talking 1,000 knives at a whack when we're launching these knives. Yeah. So it's a, it's, a, it's a lot of knives to produce. So in the, I've been following you guys for a while as far as what you guys have done up till now has just been drops, right? Yeah. So you will produce production, production, and then drop how many time, how many knives at a time? Yeah, I mean, usually, it could be I mean, 500 from, to 1,000. Okay. Yep. And then they're usually sold out within the first five yeah. minutes. Yeah. Yeah, it's been <laughs> incredible, and it's like, it's not something we intended in the beginning. It was really more of a financial thing of like, I, the first bunch of Blackfoots I made, I made 200. Okay. And then we sold those over some time, and then I made 200 more. <laughs> and they're like, okay, well, now I have enough so money. So are you making those personally? Uh, those I did, yeah. Those you did. Yeah. And then uh, um, and then it was like, okay, now we can do 400. We can cut 500 blades because you have to buy that steel, all yeah. that material. And I didn't borrow any money to do this. I didn't take a paycheck for the first six months after I quit my job. <laughs> and I swore we were just going to bootstrap it. I didn't. I already felt like I was taking a big gamble with my family's future just quitting a really good job. You and me both. So I didn't want to go borrow a ton of money. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, we've taken, we could probably be greedier and try, like today, we could probably go borrow a bunch of money and, and probably easily banks or people would give it to us. Yeah. But I would rather grow this more in a more sustainable way, be careful, do it right, yeah. be patient. I want to build a generational company. I'm not trying to just blow it up in five years and sell it, you yeah. know. Yeah, you're not going to sell to some big VC. And no, I've been a next month. knife maker since I was 11. This is what I do. That's your dream. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's been cool because now, um, you know, now, now we're, we have over 65,000 knives in production today. Uh, so in just two Crazy. years, you know, our production levels have, have skyrocketed. We just finished a new building, which is going to be huge because I've been up, in, we were in my garage up until December. Of Crazy. twenty of twenty uh, twenty two. So now we have a new facility. It's on my property. How big? It's about ten thousand square feet. I can't wait to come out and I want to look at it at some yeah, point. It's, Get it's, out there. It's really nice. But there again, we took kind of the careful approach. I did that on my own property. Uh, we didn't go spend a bunch of money on real estate and build a fifty thousand gotcha. square yeah. foot building. Yeah. This building's intended. Like the best news would be is if we grow out of it in three years. Is it the most kick ass bladesmith? It's pretty Shop. awesome. It's pretty awesome. Because you have your own little section, correct? Well, where I, you, I still... Where you develop stuff or use that on your no, own, own so shop? No, we, so we took back... I, I actually got to take back over my old shop that I started in. Okay. So MKC basically grew so fast, it kind of booted me out of my own shop as far as making a custom knife. Okay. okay. So now that we moved... Well, we built this building to my horse pasture. So now that we moved into the horse pasture, I get my <laughs> shop back to do prototypes, to do nice. customs. Um, so... I don't do any of the forging or any of that stuff in this new building because, quite uh -huh. honestly, that's a very dirty process. And uh, our, yeah. our, with our manufacturing facility, we really want things to be clean and be nice. Gotcha. Um, cleanliness is really important with the CNC machines and stuff like that. Okay. And then the health of our employees and all that. But you're so, developing these knives in your own shop. Yes, right, right, right 50 feet from that shop gotcha. is where my old shop is that is like the custom side. What does... Um 
your and when you were eleven, your coach is yeah. he still is he still with us? Yeah, yeah. And Rick, what does he a, think? He's a great what does maker. Rick think? Oh, I think he's super proud. He's super it's happy about be. it. It's and what's be. what's really cool is I didn't know back then. I you know there's a lot of luck involved with just who you meet in life and and the opportunity you have. You know, he was just making real simple hunting knives then and learning himself. And little did I know, or did any of us know, that him and a bunch of the other knife makers around Montana were about to ascend to kind of the top of the custom knife world. Really? And so as they were learning, I was kind of right on their coattails learning as well. Um, and the mag- we are in a lot of magazine articles. And it's funny because uh, they started, they nicknamed us in Blade Magazine the Montana Mafia. And because it, <laughs> it was this group of like five guys that was just absolutely taking the knife world by storm. Really? It was really cool. And they're still doing it too? Yep. Yep. Are they doing it full time? Yep. Yeah, Rick really? Dunkerley, Shane Taylor, Wade Coulter. Wade got uh, Wade and Barry both kind of had some health health issues, and they're not so much anymore. But gotcha. Yeah, it was really That's so. Awesome. It just got lucky that instead of just some backyard knife maker, that yeah. you know these guys had the the uh, kind of that hunger to learn yeah. and to grow. And uh, I just happened to be lucky that they were the ones that I was kind of attached to. So. And it's awesome that it's. I can imagine from your point, like all these guys that are at the top of the game learning from them, bouncing ideas off them, you know, iron sharpens iron kind of just like, that's pretty, that's pretty rad. Well, and I was a young kid, so I was trying to always be as good as them or catch up to them. And they were hard on me. I mean, there were a lot of times I wanted to quit. I mean, really? there were times they'd just be assholes to me, you know, and, I, and I'd, I'd yeah. make something I think it's really good. And I'd show them and be like, yeah, well, you need to fix this, this, and this. And they were definitely not, uh, uh, I mean, they were somewhat encouraging, but they sure. were, they weren't sugarcoating it. And they, you know, they nicknamed me Psycho Knife Boy, and they'd make me. They would, they would give me all their change and make me go buy, you know, pops at the motel, and, yeah. you know, yeah. go on all the ice runs, and I was just kind of the kid, the uh, the errand boy. But um, look at me now. It was finally I was about 22 years old. Finally, it felt like when I showed him a knife, and one of them was like, "It's a damn nice knife." You know, it's like finally got a compliment. <laughs> got your validation, right? Yeah. Are but, they? They're all master blade spins. Yep. They are. Yep. Yeah, so when we when I passed, I think I was like 80th or 85th in the world. You know, they'd been testing that for about 25 years at that point. Sure. Now there's like 140 in the world, so it's you know it's not a huge Crazy. group, but no, that's a small small group. If you think about, is is Montana big like knife? Is that a it, thing? It, I mean, as it, far as like. You know, um, is there different spots in the United States that it are big seem, on knives? It does seem like that. Back in the 70s and 80s, it was really down in, like, the like in the south, Alabama, really? Arkansas. Uh, there was a pocket of guys. You know, this is all pre-internet, right? Oh, yeah. So, Word of mouth. You know, I, I'm older than the internet, which makes me sound ancient. <laughs> but, you know, that's the thing. Like, when I had to learn back then, there was no YouTube. There was no yeah. internet, no Instagram. Like, you had to go to somebody's shop to learn. Yeah. And I traveled when I was 15. I flew across the country and spent a week with a guy I'd never met, George Heron, who ended up being a, an old legend. Um, but you had to go seek out information, and yeah. you had to find guys that were willing to take the time to share. Yeah. Um, which almost all those knife makers were. They were. They great. are really. Yeah. It's not like a. Uh, I, I could it's see some family. of those older arts, you know what I mean, being kind of. Well, yeah, that's true. A family kind the, of. Deal. The the art world is actually very very like closed down and it's hard to get information but the knife world was completely opposite and that's why when somebody says like hey i have a bench made knife or something like that i'm like cool that's awesome like we're doing our thing they do their thing cool um and you know the custom knife makers you know it was really cool because guys would bring 
one of their collectors over to my table if I was at a show in New York or whatever, and they'd say, hey, check out this kid. He's doing great things. And that guy would yeah. buy a knife. Like, we would share customers and That's introduce awesome. each other. And um, the only reason I got as good as I did that young was because of those guys being willing to share and teach. And, you know, you're definitely not doing it on your own, especially at 14 years old. No. You know. But pushing you like that, too, is a big thing, I think. The, the part of, I, don't, I think that's in our culture today, you know, saying, hey, Pips, quick, go get us pop, go do, you know, that pushes you, whereas yep. maybe it might not be as acceptable, quote, unquote, today. You know? Oh, yeah. No, I, they, they, were, they were hard on me. But I, I think it really, you know, it was either you're in, you're in this for the right reasons or you're not. Or you're not. And there was definitely no coddling, that's for sure. But, you know, <laughs> those old gruff guys were also willing you know, my first ever show was just south of here in Eugene, Oregon. I turned 12 at it. Yeah. and Or turned 13 at it. And, uh, you know, we got in the Cadillac. He had a big boat Cadillac. We got in there. And right when we got to the highway pulling out of my parents' house, Rick turns around and he goes, your parents think I'm a respectable, in- respectable individual. Anything you hear in this car or is said in this car stays in this car. In car. <laughs> yeah. And so I, you know, cruised to Eugene, Oregon, the backseat of a Cadillac with those guys and uh, you, you learn a lot of stuff when you, you hear real quick. So yeah, some grown men chatting and hanging out for a weekend. But That's it's funny so awesome. when I went to that Eugene show, I didn't even have a ride home. Uh, Rick was like, "Well, we'll find him somebody in Montana to bring him home." So I went to that show, and uh, that's how I ended up meeting Wade Coulter. He was from Colster at Montana, and Rick was like, "Hey, you headed home after the show?" And he's like, "Yeah." And he's like, "Hey, can Josh get a ride with you?" And he's like, "Sure. He'll keep me awake." And I went to sleep outside of Eugene. I think I woke up in Missoula. <laughs> Didn't keep anybody <laughs> Slept awake. All the way, yeah. Oh man, it that's just cool. so awesome. That, that that kind of stories and that's led to where it is at. It's just, oh man, it's pretty dang awesome. Pretty yeah, dang no, awesome. I I appreciate it, and it's it's cool with the production company. You know, it allows us to to hire. You know, we're we're I think we're up to seventeen employees now already. Um, yeah. You know, we're providing 401k and health insurance, Dude. and and I, I want to be a really positive part of our of our community. Yeah. And you know, we've we've put on veteran events already at our shop. We like to donate to you know we're, we're working with Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation on the conservation side. Um, you know, that's the thing about American manufacturing. If you make stuff in your country, uh, you're hiring Americans. You're giving back. You're paying your taxes. You're doing all that stuff versus overseas. So how good does that feel? Yeah, it's pretty cool. I, yeah, we want to build it the right way. Yeah, it's Montana Knife Company. It shouldn't be made in Beijing. You know. <laughs> <laughs> it just looks bad. That yeah. just looks terrible. Yeah, yeah. If it's that way. Let's let's talk as far as future. Yeah. Okay. So we've got to here. We've uh, got our designs out. We've got our, our our models that we have already out. What are you looking for like in the next? Do you have like ten year goals, five year goals, stuff like that? Yeah. Our, our we're still working more on just the next couple years because we're growing so much. It's hard to you guys for have me grown to, so fast. It's hard for me to have even imagined we'd be here a, a year and a half ago. Yeah. Um, so for sure, right now it's it's bringing in more models of hunting knives. We're working on development of a folding knife. Uh, See, that's my, that was my next question. What's oh, yeah. that happening? No, we're we're heavy into the process of that right now. Uh, we're in the engineering process right now on some of that stuff and figuring out the machining side. Uh, we want to move more into uh, well, we we launched the culinary stuff this year, but we yeah. want to expand into that. Everybody cooks, you know. If yeah. Some people hunt. Everybody cooks. True. Um, you know, and, and we really like that field to table. You know, when you shoot a deer or an elk, and we, we want you, you know, to use a speed goat or a blackfoot to take those back straps out. Yeah. But there's something really personal behind cooking your own back straps at home in June when you shot that elk in September. 
A hundred percent. The memories, everything comes with it. Yeah, so using an MKC knife all the way through that process is kind That's of cool. our goal for people. And, um, yeah, the folding knife side. And then a lot of the really cool partnerships and relationships that we have coming up, you know, working with guys like you, yeah. working with some other big names that we have coming up uh, just to expand our network. And, uh, you know, frankly, we want to be the, the biggest and the best hunting knife company in the yeah. country. Like, yeah. w- you know, it's interesting. So many of these other big brands out there, they don't actually hunt themselves or mm. have hunters in the design team and in the engineering teams. Like, yep, I- I'm sorry, they just don't. And they definitely don't have a bladesmith at the top of their company. No. And I hunt and I make knives. And so we are a hunting knife company. You're, you're, you're going to see dead animals on our Instagram you know, you're going to see hunting videos so, being made. <laughs> um, you're speaking my language now. So it's we're like, not we're not going to succumb to the woke stuff where we're not willing that. to post a photo of an elk that somebody harvested. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, it's like make no bones about it. We might make, you know, tactical knives. We might make culinary knives, but we're a hunting knife company. That's nice. the roots. Nice. You know? Man, I just really appreciate you jumping on here. And um, guys, Portland Sports Show, are you guys going to be back probably next year as well? Oh, for sure. Yeah. So we'll have Montana Knife Company back here next year if you guys missed it this year. But, um, man, Josh, I really, really appreciate it. It's been awesome so far. We're just starting to work with with Montana Knife Company, so you guys are going to be seeing a lot more of them on our channel um, and around. Hopefully, we're going to do a hunt together. Yeah, for at sure. At some we gotta, point, go kill gotta, something, right? Yes, we got to get that figured out for sure. A hundred percent. I mean, let's face it. It's why we do what we do. I mean, it is. Um, I started this company. One of the big perks is to be able to hunt with cool people and yeah. have fun out in the woods. So, and to everybody thinks we just hunt for a living. We don't. Okay, we we have we build companies too and yeah. make knives. And the hunting's the hunting's the great byproduct. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that's uh, I, I've I've hunted a little bit less than I've wanted to in the last couple of years, just yeah. with how busy things are. Oh, I bet. It's, um, you know, the business side's really really busy, but. Uh, you know, th- this is the best part of my favorite part of what we do is the the relationships and the people yeah, yeah. Uh, that we meet behind the scenes at these companies. I don't care what company it is. There's a ton of these companies around here where you just meet amazing people. Yeah. Um, that's my favorite part. That was my favorite part of doing shows as a custom maker was yeah. the knife makers, the collectors of all walks of life. It's um, so cool. The people that you run into, the like minded people, especially in this industry, the hunting yeah. industry pretty awesome and i'm not as a company owner frankly i'm not interested in the just like in and out influencer thing i'm really interested in long-term relationships i want to work with people for the long term where where when they say hey this is the knife we're using like they really mean it yeah we're we're in it together um for for me i've been in this for 30 years so over the next 30 years i hope to work with a lot of these people for a long time you know absolutely man anything closing anything you want to tell anybody no i i I just basically thank you the support's been incredible from everybody i mean i i couldn't have imagined it going like this and growing and honestly what's cool is most people actually don't know us about us so to me that's exciting how much ground we still have to cover yeah um and so like thank you to you guys for helping us get the word out about our company um yeah i'm just very appreciative for sure Tide raises all ships, man. It's so yeah. much fun to be able to work with like-minded companies as well. So I agree. Absolutely. Josh, awesome. thank you so much, man. Thank you. Appreciate no, it. Appreciate it. Thanks. All right.